Please be seated. Well, last Sunday we had a, a very inspiring message from Randy. And the Sunday before last, if you recall, we talked about unity in the church. And we talked about those elements that were required to attain that unity, that oneness, that fullness and maturity that each of us has to attain in Christ. We said that those elements that we had to put together were grace and the gifts of the Spirit. And when we put those elements together, that gives us the ability to achieve this unity that God wants for us as the church, the body of Christ. Now this morning, I want to take a look at a necessary step in achieving that unity, that fullness. And interestingly enough, one of the steps that's necessary in achieving unity is division. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. That, that's a little crazy. We have to have division in order to achieve unity? It takes a little while to get our minds around that. We have to have division in order to attain unity is what scripture tells us. And so we're going to dig a little bit into that so that we get a good understanding of what kind of division is required in order for us to arrive as a church that is united. And not just the local church, but the larger universal church, the body of Christ. So we're going to start in Luke, and we're going to talk about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, and it's a little bit astonishing. If you haven't heard it before, listen to this. He says, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. And then he asks a question. He says, do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That doesn't sound like unity at all, does it? See, this passage of Scripture can be really troubling to us Christians, especially those of us that have this impression of Jesus as the meek and mild, humble man from Nazareth. We forget sometimes that Jesus is God incarnate. We forget sometimes that love sometimes means telling people things they don't want to hear. See, we want our Jesus to be one of inclusion, never mind principle. We want our Jesus to be one of tolerance, never mind judgment, even though judgment is one of the things that's given to Christ alone. Now, there's a late great preacher, you may have heard the name Charles Spurgeon, and he has commentary on this very passage of scripture that I just read, and he says, Jesus here reveals 
a great peculiarity of the gospel which causes men to oppose the gospel. He bears witness that the gospel is this ardent, fervent, flaming thing. It's a subject for enthusiasm, a theme for intense devotion, a matter that excites men's souls and stirs them to the lowest depths. For this reason mainly, it arouses hostility. Have you ever encountered hostility when you have proclaimed the gospel? I venture to say you have. If you have ever proclaimed the gospel in this culture, in this society in which we live, no doubt you have met with some kind of resistance, even hostility. And Jesus says, I've come to start a fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already burning. Wow. If that's not Jesus meek and mild, is it? I've come to change everything, he says. I've come to turn everything that's upside down in the world. I've come to turn it right side up. Do you think I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? That's what he's asking. And then he answers his own question. He says, no, I have not. I've come to disrupt and confront. And from now on, whenever you find five people in a house, there you will have three against two, two against three, son against father, father against son, daughter against mother, mother against daughter, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is the way it goes. Now, in the book of Matthew, in the 10th chapter, Matthew has his own recollection of what Jesus was talking about here. And it's a little bit different, but I think we can use this. It says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, Jesus says. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What do swords do? Well, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. That's division. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus said. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Those are harsh words, very pointed words. But Jesus is making a point here that we need to pay attention to. It's not Jesus' desire that father be pitted against son and so on. It's not his desire. What he's saying here is what Charles Spurgeon says, is that if the gospel were just this ceremonial ritual these words in a book if they were just if the gospel was just a truth which we could tuck away in a creed somewhere if we could just put it in the back of our brain housing group and just kind of leave it back there that would be one thing but that's not what the gospel is is it it's a living and breathing thing it it rules the emotions it fires the affections it 
it's not possible for all of this to remain hidden and unopposed. We can't tuck the gospel away and sit on it. We can't bury that light underneath a bucket. It won't be contained. And so because of that, the powers and principalities that are out there, they're up in arms whenever the gospel is presented. If you don't believe me, log on to Facebook when you get home from church and post something that has to do with the truth of Jesus Christ going to the cross, going to the grave, conquering death, and then being resurrected in three days and see what kind of response you get from the general public. Our society, our culture, rejects the gospel message. It's just the nature of fallen man to do that. What is good is called bad. What is bad is called good. What's right is wrong. What's wrong is called right. These are the signs of the times. There's this cultural shift away from the church, away from righteousness, away from the gospel. You've seen it. And so in our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus rebukes the crowd for asking for signs. See, the, the folks were asking for signs, but they weren't really interested in anything but the free lunch. Because Jesus, all this time, in the course of his ministry, in the course of his adult life, had been giving them signs and miracles, had they not been paying attention they wanted signs, and when he gave them signs and miracles, they didn't pay any attention to anything but what would fill their bellies. They wanted signs. And, and my question is, are we heeding the signs today? Because Luke talks about the signs of the times in Luke chapter 12. He says, Jesus said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it's going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, especially if you're in Texas, and it happens. And then Jesus says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? See, Jesus says, when you see the clouds coming from the west, you say, there's a storm coming, and you'd be right. And the wind comes up out of the south. We see this, and you just watch the weather map, and all those arrows, those red arrows coming out of the gulf, coming from the south, and you say, it's going to be a hot one, and you'd be right. But Jesus is saying, you can tell a change in the weather, so why can't you understand a change in the season? Not summer to fall, but the God season that we're in right now. Can, can you not see the signs? In Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they wanted a sign from Jesus also. They wanted to test him. And so they asked him to show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus said, 
when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, you say it will be stormy today because the sky is red and threatened. And he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the time because you are an evil and adulterous generation. And those are the people who ask for signs even though the signs are all around them. And then he tells them something that I find interesting. He says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Well, we just talked about Jonah in the kids' lesson today. What is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is speaking of here? Well, if we look at Matthew chapter 12, Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they ask him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, he answers, You're an evil and adulterous generation because you're asking for a sign, and no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. He might as well have said to them, you guys just don't get it, do you? Why should I continue to show you miracles and signs and wonders? But then we see this mercy and grace of Jesus because he continues to do miracles and signs throughout his ministry for their benefit. And then he gives them a sign that's different from all the rest. It's this sign of Jonah. It's the resurrection of Christ himself from the dead by his own power. It's, it's for our conviction and for our edification that he does this. He does this so that we can understand. It's the great proof of Jesus' divinity that he is, in fact, the Messiah. It's the ultimate sign. His resurrection is the ultimate sign. It was such a sign that it surpassed all the rest. His work completed, his victory, a crowning glory. If we don't believe the former signs, how will we ever believe the sign of Jonah, the resurrection? If this doesn't convince us, nothing will. And what happened after the resurrection? Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests, said his disciples came and stole him away. You see, there are none so incurably blind as those who willfully will not see. And this is the culture in which we live. See, it's those who just 
will not see who are, we are at odds with in the culture as Christians. Some of them may be right in our own household, Jesus says. Some of them may have authority over us. Some of, some of us may have a boss or an employer who is that to us. Some of them may be someone who's near and dear to us, a friend or a relative. These people may require more love, more prayer. They might be EGRs. Have you ever heard of an EGR? These are people where extra grace is required. See, we may have to love them despite their ways, but what we should never do is go along to get along. What we must never do is condone their sin. We must never be their sin enabler. See, Jesus ate with sinners, but he never participated in their sin. And when it comes right down to our very souls, we can never agree to compromise the truth of the gospel for anything, for anyone, for any reason. That's why we have to experience division between those who are believers and those who are not, we have to wade through and live among this culture that's self-absorbed, that denies Christ, so that the difference between what is righteous, what is of God, and what is unrighteous and not of God, so that difference can be clearly defined. So that sin can be called sin and righteousness can be called righteousness. We have to have that division. We have to define it so that we, the church, can influence the culture instead of allowing the culture to influence the church, which is what's happening to our beloved Methodist church today. And so we have to experience this division so that we can attain this full measure of maturity, of oneness, of unity in Christ, so we know what it is that we stand for, and so we can reject the rest of it. The last thing is we need to be on fire for the gospel, and we need to be fearless and relentless in spreading See, the Apostle Paul said, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Second Timothy. And I encourage you, just like we lit the candles on the altar, you have to ignite the fire. I mentioned Charles Spurgeon. He has a number of good works. And yeah, the language is a little bit lofty and a little bit old, but it's powerful. And so I want to close with reading you a piece from Spurgeon. He says, O lovers of Christ, come and bow at his feet and ask him to let his love supply you with fire. Come to the pierced one. Gaze upon the thorn crown. Look into the hole which the soldier's spear has made. Gaze into the nail prints and say unto your soul, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Now for the love I bear his name. 
What was my gain? I count my loss. My former pride, I call my shame and nail my glory to his cross. Yes, and I must and will esteem all things but loss for Jesus' sake. Oh, may my soul be found in him and of his righteousness partake. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne, but faith can answer thy demand by pleading what my Lord has done. Before we can have unity, we have to have the division, the division that clearly defines right from wrong. And then as the church, as one unified body in Christ, we can stand and press into the culture what is of God and let the culture go its own way because that's not for the church. And then, when we show what the difference is between the things of God and the things that are not, we let the Holy Spirit do the rest and lead people back to Him because that's what the Holy Spirit does in the world. We have to be ministers of the faith. That's what we're called to be as the body of Christ. We have to be the ones that boldly share the gospel you're not responsible for saving the soul. You're just responsible for spreading the word. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.